This is episode 265 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, The Story of Botox with Dr. Eugene Helveston. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, the training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. Thank you for joining us and tune in on Mondays for new episodes. I'm very pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today, Eugene Helveston is with us. He's an MD. Welcome to the show, Dr. Helveston. Thank you. It's good to be here. Great. I'm going to introduce you. He's an emeritus professor of ophthalmology at the Indiana University School of Medicine. His numerous honors include the Kellogg Scholar Award from the University of Michigan, the Humanitarian of the Year, and Silver Recognition Awards from Indiana Academy of Ophthalmology, and the Outstanding Humanitarian and Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Academy of Ophthalmology. He's authored or co-authored three ophthalmology textbooks and over 200 scientific papers and taught and served as a volunteer in 50 countries. In addition, he has written three thrillers, and a nonfiction book about youth learning from work. He's also the author of the book that we're going to talk about today, which is called Death to the Transformative History of Botox. He has two daughters, four grandchildren, and one great-grandchild, and he lives in Indianapolis. So thanks again for joining us. It's really a pleasure to have you. Well, likewise, it's fine to be here. I so much enjoyed reading your book partly because it's so clearly written and uh, addresses some kind of complicated topics in such a straightforward way, very easy to understand. So I recommend it if you have an interest in Botox and its origins. Uh, this would be a nice book to pick up because you'll get a lot of information on a complex topic, but it written in a very clear, straightforward, nice narrative way. And you would have laughed if you were here with me in the room, because as I was reading the book, I kept saying things like, oh, that's why that, especially, oh, that's why we can't feed honey to babies who are less than a year old. Yeah, there were several of those kind of, oh, <laughs> that I had while I was reading. So let's start with some basics. What is Clostridium botulinum? Am I saying that right? Clostridium botulinum. Botulinum. Okay, long eye. Good to know. Where does it come from and uh, how do we find it? Clostridium botulinum is a microorganism, a gram-positive rod uh, that's found just about everywhere in the world, in, in the soil, in the sediment, uh, the dirt, everywhere. It is um, a, not a very remarkable um organism it itself. It's, it's uh, one of approximately 30,000 bacteria that are named and, and reasonably well understood. But it has the distinction of producing an exotoxin. An exotoxin is something that comes out of an organism, a living substance that comes out of an organism. Uh, and the organism is not uh, destroyed, but can, can continue producing. 
And this toxin that Clostridium botulinum produces is the most lethal toxin known to humankind. And that's its claim to fame or infame as you would want to, uh, however you want to describe it. Right, yeah, sort of famous and infamous at, yes. <laughs> at, the, at the same time. Yes. So it's, I think you say in the book, it's odorless, tasteless, and colorless. Colorless, yes. And what effect does it have on the human body? It has a very unique effect in that uh, the toxin is absorbed into the bloodstream and it travels throughout. And when it gets to a nerve ending, a nerve that will go through a synapse or connection process to a muscle or whatever that nerve is activating, this uh, Clostridium botulinum toxin deactivates that substance which mediates between the nerve and the muscle. And that substance is called acetylcholine. So what happens, the Clostridium botulinum is like having a lamp that works in good electricity source, but you pull the plug. And deactivating acetylcholine in effect is pulling the plug. So everything is normal except the nerve no longer connects with the muscle or the organ that the nerve is associated with. Turns things off on a temporary basis. Actually, I love that explanation because you can imagine times when pulling the plug is a disaster and yes. pulling the plug is a really good thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well put. Yeah, so yeah, that's a that's a great analogy. And let's just talk a little bit here about We'll, we'll talk more about food preservation and how this toxin can affect us. But let me ask this really fundamental question first. If it's in the soil, why is it that it's okay for us to eat things that come from the soil, like carrots? Good question. First of all, you ought to wash the carrots and the lettuce and the beets and the potatoes and whatever else you dig out. And, and you, you always do. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, let's say you don't wash them sufficiently and, and there is some Clostridium botulinum bacteria left that you ingest with the food. Mm -hmm. The Clostridium botulinum bacteria is encased in what is called a spore, which is like putting on an overcoat uh, when you go out where it's cold. It's a protection for the substance inside. Probably every day of our lives, each of us ingests a fair number of Clostridium botulinum bacteria, uh, but they remain in the spore, and they, the, the bacterium in the spore form must remain in the system in the gut, in the digestive system, long enough for the spore to break and the uh, bacterium to, to begin producing the toxin. But it turns out that the bacterium doesn't stay long enough in the gut to have this happen so that the bacteria are expelled without ever having done their nasty deed. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a matter of time mm -hmm. in, in that case. 
So, yeah, so we are ingesting them. We're just passing them through, passing as you say, in this, yeah, in this encapsulated state. And so they, it doesn't hurt us. Well, in a, in a, just a brief dig digression, because you brought it up, I think, about the honey in, in babies. Yeah. Is that babies have a very slow system in, in their digestive process. So a, a honey, uh, a honey, which is, which is pretty much heavily populated with the, with the Clostridium botulinum bacteria stays in the infant gut or can stay in the gut, infant gut long enough to be able to produce toxin and and then cause uh, clostridium botulinum poisoning in an infant and that is not common but if it's your infant it's very common where well, yeah, you'd want to be very careful about it yeah yes. i was really surprised to learn that from your book that babies have a slower digestive system yes. i guess i would have just intuitively thought the opposite right <laughs> me too you know yeah <laughs> i right. changed a few diapers Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Things to move, seem to move pretty fast. Yes. But yeah, that was that was really an interesting uh, thing to observe. And why is it that there's so much um, Clostridium botulinum? Why is there so much of that in honey? I don't know. I have no oh. idea. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I didn't delve into that and it, it, it never popped out at anything I read. So I just said, oh, heck. Yeah, it is. It it's is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. It is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so um, I'm kind of going in the order of things in the book. So start way back. How did we find out that that this bacteria was toxic? In in uh, 1793, uh, in southern Germany, <clears throat> they some uh, doctors put together uh, some evidence that a, a lot of people were dying who were otherwise healthy and the only thing they had in common after some careful study was that they had a similar diet and that diet included blood sausage which had a whole bunch of components mm -hmm. and so they said well you know it looks like something in this blood sausage uh is is causing problems with the with these people and uh we should look into it and they got about as far as saying that maybe the cooks didn't boil them long enough mm -hmm. uh, and they left it at that. But then by 1817, when this continued, uh, a, a, another doctor, Justinus Kerner, uh, got a little more scientific about it. And he actually studied the blood sausage and, and he found three common ingredients, blood, salt and uh, a fatty substance. And he blamed uh, the fatty substance as being the most likely cause and that he studied the fatty substance and found out that it killed uh, small insects, small animals, in a little bit larger animals, it caused muscle weakness. Mm -hmm. And then in a kind of a brave or audacious or whatever you'd want to call it act, he put a little bit on his tongue and he felt a very uh, a stringent feeling uh, and that his, his, uh, the lining of his mouth uh, dried up, uh, and he um, he concluded that this was a pretty powerful thing in this fatty acid. And he said, you know, maybe it could have use someday as a medicine if we ever figured out what it was all about. So that was the start of it. And from there, various others picked the story up and added a little bit more to the information as time went on. 
Yeah, which your book really recounts very well, this long history of discovery and investigation. It's really quite inspiring, I must say, you know, because you make a point of that in your book of talking about how so many people who came along just added a little bit more information, just a little bit more discovery yes, uh, yes. into this. Yeah, it's it's really a, a great, great story of how this all came about and merged to, yeah, which, you know, into a household word now with, yeah. with, with Botox, right? Yes, yeah. yes. The, the builders along the way acted like the cathedral builders, each one putting a stone in place, building toward the uh, final structure, but not knowing what they're ever going to run into. And the second point you made about um, uh, about the, the word becoming so common, I, I, I just started reading the Elizabeth penny series of of stories and botox appears in that several oh. times so oh interesting oh i didn't know oh without without any without any further explanation she's making the assumption that the the word is going to be perfectly known to everybody so it's it's become kind of a household word and i'm i'm trying with a book to explain it and say why it's there yeah Right. And how these things are connected, which, you yes. know, that was very fascinating to me. And I love this quote in your book. It's so appropriate for the Botox story. All things are poison. Only the dose determines a thing is not poison. It is such, yes. you know, so appropriate for, for Botox. And remind me who, whose quote that is? Paracelsus, the physician of the 16th century, said that. It, that was a prescient uh, statement, to say the least. If you if you look at the the poison aspect of it, people say, "Oh my gosh, that's that's all they they think about is how potent the the, the toxin is." But as as it turns out, they have probably have half a dozen things in their medicine cabinet which are equally uh, as potent, uh, because it takes three thousand units of Botox. Uh, to be the LD50 to be dangerous to a human. And that is a whole bunch of Botox, you know, more than anybody would ever dream of getting. So there's a large safety factor in this very potent uh, drug, which is put in place by dilution. Right. We should talk a little bit, although I want to yeah, caveat this uh, with what you're saying also. I mean, as a toxin, it is shockingly powerful. Right. So I think yes. you you uh, talk in the book about how many grams it would take to wipe out the entire human population. And it's not very many. Three teaspoons full. If it's delivered in the most uh, expeditious way, three teaspoonfuls. But don't worry, it, it isn't going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I think. And again, you explain that really well in the book, how the toxin is broken down and then how diluted it is when it's delivered for various medical reasons, including as Botox injections. So yeah, I just want to quickly reassure the, the listeners that, yeah, we've got something super powerful here, which is everywhere, interestingly, yes. but in terms of what you're likely to actually access, it's quite diluted. And that's why this quote right. uh, makes so much sense. What does it look like when a human has is suffering from botulism poisoning? Well, it's it's a, called a descending paralysis. You start to get droopy lids, double vision, a flat face, just look downer. And then the weakness of the upper extremities, and then you start having trouble breathing. 
And if you get enough of it and you don't do something, you die from respiratory failure, stopping effective breathing. I think that's a good visual of explaining what is happening as those uh, muscles let go and that yes. connection isn't made anymore. It's a, it's a good image for understanding how it works and then um, how deadly it would be once it starts getting into your respiratory function. Yes, yes. I, I mean, it is amazing. You also tell the story about uh, some olives, contaminated olives that circulated to the rest of the United States. And it's really amazing how few olives actually killed people. Yes, exactly. Just a, just a two or three <clears throat> or one or two. Yeah. Yeah. So really, we shouldn't worry about our Botox shots. We should be worried, though, about foodborne illness when it comes to yeah. botulism. Fortunately, though, the olive scare was uh, really a stimulus to put together uh, a food safety act. And with careful study, it was determined that if the food was heat heated for the proper time to the proper temperature, all of the bacterium and all of any toxin present would be gone. So the, the present canning process virtually eliminates botulism poisoning as a, as a dangerous foodborne thing. And it's only a few hundred or so cases a year uh, that have it. And this usually comes from food that's been mishandled uh, or, or home cooked or home canned and been allowed to stand out <clears throat> and have uh, uh, enough time for the toxin to be produced. And again, I think that's an, uh, something interesting for our listeners is the food that you're acquiring commercially is probably fine. Yes. But you do need to be careful when you're preparing your own food. Yes. And the story about the blood sausages is actually interesting to me because there was speculation that the reason that those sausages carried the toxin and uh, injured people or killed people was because the cooks didn't want to overcook the sausage because then they would burst and then they it, wouldn't be presentable. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, be careful when we're in our kitchens and we take shortcuts because we want things to look nice. Yeah. It, it might turn out not to be that pretty after all anyway. So. Well, I have to tell you, while I was writing the book, I was extra careful about how long I put food out on the counter before before I ate it. I no kidding. It I put it back in the refrigerator and I kept thinking, you know, could I possibly let this sneak through? It, it, did, it didn't happen, obviously. But, no, uh, I, I've had the same reaction since reading your book. Exactly. Yeah. I think scientists and people who know about things like that are often very cautious, right? Whereas those of us who just blithely go around our day don't think about these dangers until we read a book like yours. And it's a reminder, hey, you know, there's there are things out there that can that can really hurt you. Knowing what could happen is not comforting. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just to reiterate that uh, food should be heated to 85 degrees centigrade, 185 degrees Fahrenheit for at least five minutes to kill yes. all the botulism. So yeah, yes. write, write that down or put that in your minds, our listeners, uh, in order to stay safe with your home cooked food. Okay. So how did our intrepid humans start thinking about using the toxin for beneficial purposes. 
1943, at the um, Armed Forces Biological Warfare Center, uh, the government was in the middle of World War II, and there were some concerns, or had been some concerns for several years, particularly coming from Winston Churchill, that um, there should be something done about setting up defenses against possible biological warfare. Uh, it turned out later that Hitler had no intention of doing that because he was quite sure that the Allies would pay him back with dividends, and he didn't want to get into that type of a problem. Uh, anyway, the United States did study uh, botulinum and uh, was able, the scientists were able to purify the toxin for the first time. Uh, and during the, in the process, they, they figured out how it affected the body, what the mechanisms of action were. They also determined that it was very, very unlikely that this fragile uh, molecule could be put together in, in a deliverable form to cause problems. So the concerns about the, uh, the toxin being a weapon of war were put to rest. Uh, but Dr. Edward Shantz, who was a biochemist, uh, at the facility, it continued on as the caretaker of this toxin uh, culture, and he provided it to various laboratories for basic scientists who were studying various kinds of disease that had muscle effect. And so it was. It went out to more than a hundred uh, researchers worldwide for use in their laboratory in very small amounts. So that was its first, you know, useful medical use. It began about 1945 and continued, uh, but in 1972 with Alan Scott, there was a big change. This is a little bit of a digression, but I want to throw it in here because uh, we're going to talk some more about the applications, and this one's just a little bit of a side note. But I was very intrigued fairly recently, within the past year or so, I had a family member who I won't name. But she told me that she has had been diagnosed as having a hyperactive bladder. Yep. And she said, I'm going to get Botox shots for my hyperactive bladder. And yep. at the time, it was like, what? Okay, whatever. And, you know, I went on. And then, of course, reading your book again, it was like, oh, that's why. So, yeah, tell us how, about that application. We, we, all, we all know about muscles in the bladder. <laughs> And getting to the restroom in time, et cetera, et cetera. Well, um, the uh, botulinum toxin, in, in its action to to cut down overactive muscles, works just that way. If you inject it in the right place, you can tone down the effect of the muscle action, and you can have much less urgency as far as um, the, um, the the bladder functions concerned. So. Yeah, it, it sort of tones things down, mm -hmm. uh, just like you make a little wrinkle go away someplace where you can see it or do other things while you you uh, slow down the function of the bladder. Now, there's a caveat here uh, that in case you get a little bit more or it has a little more effect than you'd want, people who are treated with this for hyperactive bladder have to be ready to be able to catheterize themselves if necessary. Maybe I'm getting a little bit too graphic, but I but, think but, my listeners can handle it. Yeah, they're okay. Tough. All right. Well, then, <laughs> then we'll just we'll just go in full force. So, <laughs> so it's it does prove it really works. Mm -hmm. But but you can't always be sure that you can titrate it right down to the 
exact exact effect. Um, but that is one of the that's one of the very useful uh, applications for Botox that people wouldn't think about offhand. Right. And, yeah. And there are, there are two dozen others. Uh, two dozen. Oh, yeah, yes. that's a lot. So I'm going to turn to your uh, specialty now. So who began to think of how to use the toxin in ophthalmology? Well, that was 100% Alan Scott's work. And his idea, if you said you had, if, if a person's eyes were crossed in, crossed eyes, and a, a infant, for example, and he thought, well, the treatment for uh, eyes that cross in would be to detach the in-pulling muscle of one or both eyes and reattach it to the globe four or five millimeters farther back to eventually have the same muscle stretching over a shorter distance and it would become relatively weaker. Well, that requires general anesthesia and going to the hospital and cutting into the eyeball and cutting tissue off and so forth. He thought, well, what if we could inject a toxin into that muscle to weaken it a predicted amount and we could get the eye straight without surgery. So that was his premise. And he worked on that throughout his entire life. I mean, from 1961, he started working on a, a decade of how the muscles worked. And beginning in 1972, for the rest of his life, he spent his time working on how you could be artfully and accurately applying the, the toxin to do what you wanted to do with the eye muscles. And when he started the clinical trials, he said, well, this is what I want you to do, try it on eye muscles, but you can use it on anything else you want to, as long as you keep track of what you're doing and know why you're doing it, because we were pretty sure it's safe, uh, it, that it weakens muscle. But it turned out that it's only applicable to one to 3% of cross-eyed patients maybe a little bit more, and that there aren't that many cross-eyed patients or misaligned eye patients in the world. So it's not really something that's going to be very exciting to pharmaceutical manufacturers. And right. that's, that's the quandary he was in by the middle of the 1980s. Yeah, I like this description in the book that, it, that the toxin works like a sharp knife. Yes, it, it works like a sharp knife. It, it does exactly what you expect it to do in exactly the same place <clears throat> in exactly how much, depending on your skill and in and, and and, and determining the right way. Uh, it's a very accurate type of uh, intervention, but it's, it's also a little bit like painting a picture. <laughs> you, mm -hmm. you, it's, an, it's an art, not a science when mm. you start applying it to the person, or at least it's an artful science. Right. Uh -huh. So you talk a lot about, I'm probably mispronouncing this one too, uh, straba strabismus. Strabismus. Oh, the stress is in a different place. Strabismus. And is that what you're talking about with cross-eyed or That's eyes? cross-eyed. Strabismus is any misalignment of the eyes, in, out, up, down, portionally, and so forth. It's yeah. Strabismus is misalignment of the eyes. Yeah, the book really serves somewhat as a biography of Alan Scott, was a very interesting character. Seems like really a, an extraordinarily generous kind of uh, human being. And you uh, got to work with him. So tell us about your involvement in the experimentation usage of the toxin. 
Well, it's, it's, it started really actively in 1982 when I visited Allen's Clinic in San Francisco with my partner, Daryl Ellis. We took it back to our practice and we used it uh, during the 80s, primarily on people with blepharospasm, forceful, uh, unwanted closure of the eyelids, torticollis or tilted necks, hemifacial spasm where one side of the face is, is caught in a very disfiguring rimus and so forth. And we did this we ran a clinic several times a month, and we, we treated hundreds of patients basically uh, with, with an experimental drug. Uh, they were not charged for the drug, and since uh, Medicare didn't pay for the other things, so we basically saw them for virtually no, no charge uh, for this period of time. And uh, we used it some for our strabismus or our misalignment cases, uh, but we, we just did that on our own. Uh, eventually, uh, we sent uh, uh, 25 or $40 for a vial to help out uh, Alan pay for the way because there was a lot of expense and he was bearing it himself. We, we just did this for 10 years. And then in 1989, when it was, was approved for, uh, in, uh, as an FDA-approved drug, we used it in our clinic, uh, continuing. And then we continued in, after 1991 when uh, Allergan bought it and renamed the drug Botox. And then I continued using it until I retired in 10 years later. Uh, so it, it just became part of our practice. And we uh, communicated with Alan periodically, but not any, not for any decision-making processes, just to say hello and saying we weren't having any complications and the drug seems to do what he said it could do. Again, he really seems like a very interesting uh, person, and I want to talk a little bit more about him in a minute. But in your use in the clinic, that was also interesting in the book to me. You mentioned uh, some patients having their face distorted by a grimace, and I've probably seen that before. But I hadn't heard before of people who suffer from having their eyelids close. Blepharospasm, yeah. And yeah, so that was interesting. And it seemed as though the drug was very effective in helping those people keep their eye, literally keep their eyes open. Very, very, very. Absolutely. Yeah. It, you just never know what is going to go wrong. And then, you know, what, what can, uh, it, what intervention can be done to help people. But yeah, quite remarkable. And you tell some of the success stories in the book about helping people who were unable to drive before, but now that they, yep. now that they could. Yeah, tell us about manufacturing. Let's. Well, Alan was something that you could, couldn't be done today. Right? He's wor working with the world's deadliest toxin. He's getting it free from Ed Chance, who was working on his own, retired from the Army, now at the Wisconsin Food Safety Laboratory. And um, it was like making Campbell's soup in your kitchen and selling it worldwide. He had this big thing that he was doing all him, himself, freeze drying, the dilution, uh, the stabilizing, and all of that stuff he, was, he had done on his own. And since it was a biological, when he went to the Food and Drug Administration to uh, apply for a license, they said, well, a living organic substance has to be produced by an independent manufacturer who does that kind of thing? You can't just do that in your own laboratory because <laughs> because it's not like adding salt and this, that, and the other thing, which we know what it is. We don't even know what this thing. This is, this is a living culture. So 
he had to find a, a company to do that. So he found a, a company in New Mexico whose only product was sterile water. And he, he got them to repackage his uh, processed botulinum. And so really, uh, he, he kind of skirted things. I mean, they were the manufacturer, but all they did was put his stuff in a test tube and put a cork on it. And, and he called and, and they said, OK, fine, that's manufacturing. <laughs> so that was one of those things that when we had a discussion about this. He said, you know, if I was doing this today, I never, ever could have done what I did. It would have been impossible. Uh, so it was still it was still even when they had a manufacturer and they called it the Oculinum Corporation that where he so he made a name up that was a, a little more like medicine and easy, easier to say than botulinum atoxin. So they called it Oculinum in his manufactured process. But basically, he was still doing it all. Hmm. The the company was was worried about contamination and so forth. So he worked with uh, a cohort uh, who was an employee. Uh, to do the first two dilutions, then the, the, the staff of the uh, manufacturer, so to speak, uh, did the rest. And then he'd go skiing. And then when they mailed the, they mailed the toxin back to San Francisco, they had to put it in dry ice. And there was no stipulation about the toxin, but they had to claim it was a, a hazardous mailing because of the dry ice. So there was a lot of... Oh. <laughs> Oh, right. Forget there's, that. <laughs> there's a lot of things in there that you say, oh, I'm not going to question that. I'm just going to go ahead. And, uh -huh. and, and that was one of them. Uh -huh. Yeah, different era. Right. But um, but amazing. Again, you know, your book does such a great job of telling that story of amazing progress in with really quite remarkably low costs. Yes. Oh, yeah. The usual... The usual cost for bringing a drug to market and approval is somewhere between 500 million and a billion dollars. Uh, and there are some extremes and outliers either way. But Alan did it for 4.25 million. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting that you did the calculation for that in the, in the book. Again, the whole story is really about people being quite intrepid and quite inventive. It, it's really, yes. yeah, it's a very fun story, which brings us to kind of a, I mean, it's a cool story, but it's also kind of a sobering story about the patent and why it's not patented the, the way you might have expected. So tell us about that. Especially uh, now with a, a lot of written about uh, scientific activities that's available to the lay press, there's a lot of talk about patents. And people who are basic scientists and involved in these activities are very likely to try and patent as much as they can. And it's not necessarily their wishes to do it, but the laboratories that they work for or work with uh, are very eager to have these patents. And Alan, when he did his first 1972 injection uh, into monkeys, he explained the whole process, what he did and how it worked. And later on, when people said, well, yes, we'd maybe be interested in looking into your thing more, but we don't want to pursue it because you, it's not patented and it can't be patented. And it turned out and then the laboratory that Alan worked in, Smith Kettlewell and, and the California Pacific Medical Center, they said, well, you know, can you patent it? And the patent, uh, the, the FDA said no. 
1972 paper was a disclosure of prior state of the art. So it was not patentable. It's out there for everybody. So he couldn't patent it in that. But the other point of it is, it's a biological substance. Coca-Cola doesn't have a patent on their stuff, but it's, but it's a trade secret. So unpatentable organic activities that are trade secrets are hard to, to match. But other, other people have made uh, botulinum toxin, but just a few around the world. Allen's, Allen's was better and got a way head start on everybody. And uh, Allergan took it from there, and it's a matter of business. I didn't want to get into the business part of it any more than I had to. In the book? In the book. Oh, I see. Yeah, because there's what there is enough there for it to be, you know, for us to get a pretty good idea, especially of Alan Scott's attitude toward it, right? The fact that he published that paper to share it and also the way he distributed it, right, for people to use. Yes, yes. Um, you know, those were all signs of what kind of person he was, I think, that he really was in, interested in an invention, but not so much in making money. Well, Alan, Alan Scott, Jennifer, he was the real deal. And we're, we're, we're the same age within a year or so. And I've known him, well, he's passed away now, but I, but I, I knew him for more than 50 years. And he is exactly what I tried to portray him in the book. He was unflappable. He was unselfish. He, he had no, no need to become rich or famous. Uh, he, he started, I said, Alan, you know, we, we, we talked a good deal, deal for the first six months uh, before he passed away in between the starting of the writing. And when I, I called him and said, hey, can, can I write this? Uh, would you, you, you want to be part of it? He said, yeah, let's see what happens. So we had a lot of discussions and he just said, you know, I, I started practice. I wanted to ask some questions and get some answers. And I did. And it was fun. And 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 that's and I haven't gotten anybody ever who's known him or talked to him have been able to counter counteract anything that I'm any any opinion that I have of him. He's just a he's just a good guy and a one of a kind. And uh, he'd he'd be the guy you'd want to be the scout leader or the captain of the team. Yeah, and it's a shame he uh, passed away in 2021, so he didn't get to see the publication of the book, which I should mention to our listeners, the book just came out last week, I think, or or maybe the week yeah. before. But yes, it's it's just brand uh, fresh, fresh off the presses. Yes. Um, but yeah, sadly, uh, he didn't get to see the publication of the book, although he clearly participated a lot in the story. There's oh, a, yes. There's a quote in there as somewhere i'm not seeing it in my notes but something about we had all the fun and okay. allergan got all the money something yeah, that was exactly <laughs> what he said and those were his quotes. i said alan you know you're human and um the people who started who developed gatorade uh who happened to have made their financial arrangements for gatorade in indianapolis indiana at the hospital <laughs> worked for 40 years although i didn't know that at the time they, they talked to, to the people at Stokely Van Camp, a company in Indianapolis who had factories around the world, and they made beans, baked beans mostly. Mm -hmm. They sold their Gatorade after nobody else would buy it, and the University of Florida wouldn't. Uh, Van Camp said, well, you know, the million dollars that you're asking is a lot of money. How about if we just paid you 
something like three and 3.5 cents per gallon. They said, okay, whatever. And it, it turned out that 3.5 cents per gallon has made more than a billion dollars in royalties to the, de to the developers of Gatorade. So there you go. And Gatorade sells a little bit more annually than Botox. And Alan was willing to basically break even. He, he did a little more than break even, but not much. Not much. Uh, instead of uh, breaking even, instead of a billion dollars, give or take. Yeah, right. Big, and he didn't. And he didn't care. And he sincerely, genuinely had no hard feelings or misgivings about it. It was the way it was. And he was happy with what he did. And probably wouldn't do it. He said, "I'm a, I, I was a lousy businessman, but <laughs> he didn't say anything more than that." He enjoyed what he did, or at least that's the that's the picture that we get from the book. Yeah, and he, as he said, we had all the fun, right? Yeah, Getting he, to he develop did. it and explore and figure out how it's going to work. I mean, that, you know, that's really laudable. But he never got really widely known outside of a few professional circles. The regular consumer for botulinum toxin that probably doesn't know who he is. Matter of fact. A lot of the women who leave their from their treatment of uh, with Botox for their cosmetic purposes probably think their doctor discovered it. Could be, or it came from somewhere, right? Yes. Some, but the, but the idea, right, that it probably came from a very commercial enterprise from the beginning. I think that's what's what's kind of yes. interesting about yes. this story. Yeah, which it which it didn't. Which it didn't, and really, all of this money is coming. I, I don't know if this is the correct term, but but I might consider it off-label use. Uh, you're right. It's it, it the, most of the use of it. Ninety-five percent of the use of the drug in the '90s was off-label, and and off-label is perfectly okay. Uh, and it's turned out that that nobody had any problems with it, and there haven't been problems with it. So it was it's a totally safe drug. But yeah, you're right. It, they they came and then gradually after an off-label use has been in, in effect for a while, then the companies get it approved. They run a little study and they get it. So gradually, more and more, uh, more and more of these several dozen things that's being used for now are being approved. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're right. It's a it, it's an off-label success story. Yeah, big time. Yeah, big time. yeah, big time. And you, this was something also that was a little counterintuitive to me. Why is it that it works on wrinkles? What I would have thought wrinkles would be the result of gravity over time. Like it would have been more from pulling the face instead of a muscle contraction. So can well, you explain that? That's a good. That's a good question. And I think you're you're right. Uh, uh, those kinds of things that. <laughs> That are the result of gravity. Yeah. Don't get fixed by this. But the horizontal lines in the forehead, those are muscle initiated. Hmm. And the, uh, the the vertical crease between the eyes that goes up down between the nose and the forehead, that's a muscle initiated one. Huh. And and there are there are some others, uh, but you you're exactly right. And I don't I don't want to get into too much into the cosmetic part because number one. That's not my, that, that was not my thing. And, uh -huh. and, and number two, I'm just a touch of a nihilist about it. So, <laughs> so, so, uh, so I would have to disqualify myself, but respectfully so. Mm -hmm. 
I share your feeling. That's not uh, something that I engage in. But as a business person, I'm certainly awed by the the industry and the money that is made by it. So yeah, that that's that part of it is quite remarkable. Oh, you oh you loathsome money grubbers, you. <laughs> One story I wanted to tell, too, about Alan Scott that I think is so uh, indicative. Apparently, when it was approved for ophthalmology use, uh, someone on the FDA committee argued that it should not be approved for children under the age of 12. I might use the word, you know, for capricious reasons, or it didn't seem to be supported by the data because there it had been used successfully in children uh, in a large number of children. Yes. But when you brought that up to Alan Scott, when you were writing the book, you report that he said, oh, just let that pass, right? Exactly. We, we don't need that, to, yeah. You know, that is, you're, you're a pretty sharp reader, Jennifer. <laughs> well, that's really struck me, right? Because here would be a chance where most normal people, right, would be like, here's my chance to get that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're, 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 you're right. And, and, and you, you, you caught me in my, in my little attempt at irony, uh, which maybe was a successful attempt at irony, because, because when I, when I heard him say that, and I, and I thought to myself, well, just for a minute, would you stop acting like Alan Scott? <laughs> you know, Come on, and, yeah, indulge us. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I knew I knew the backstory about you know the Washington D.C. and I know about who's practicing there and I knew who was practicing when and so forth, and I had some ideas about who would do what and so forth, <clears throat> and I had the I had the name of uh, on the tip of my tongue who I would thought it would be. And I, and I thought, well, you know, I'm just not going to, I'm, I'm going to try to be him for a minute and I'm just not going to say it. I said, okay. And I, and I let it, and I let it pass. Uh, but that was a kind of a superhuman restraint on his part because, uh, because it had a huge effect because it, it was widely used in Europe on infants and people under a year, uh, wow. with no problem, no difficulty, whatever. And, um, I was also maybe the, the potential, recipient uh, unwanted so of, of that kind of thing otherwise in my own career so i i knew that that stuff worked and i said well for the most part i did the same thing not not as elegantly as he did i mean it's great to have that example right and yes, so it yeah is. it can it inspire is. us to to rise above and and also i think it's fun too that he had so much fun right that he exactly. enjoyed everything that he did and and maybe a way that he was successful in that is not, you know, is to let things pass, right? Yep. Yeah. Let yeah. things pass. Let yeah. Things pass. So yeah, lots of things that we can learn from Alan Scott. And I will just mention uh, to the listeners that you do have quite a bit of explanation in the book about how it started being used in dermatology and yes. how that grew. So yeah, don't um, don't miss that when you uh, when you pick up a copy of the book. Uh, yeah, that there will be some very interesting information in there about that, and also the continued story with Allergan obtaining the rights to it, and then what they've uh, what they've done with it since. So yeah, it, there's there's more to the story, I guess. Uh, I and and Jennifer, I hope the people read the appendices. Oh, I don't think I did. The appendices are appendices, maybe for the reason that you didn't read it. 
is I didn't want to intrude in the book itself with it, but there was a couple of stories that I really, I, I didn't want to not tell. Uh-huh. So I put, and there were just one pagers. Okay. Uh, there are only four of them. They were kind of fun to do. Do you want to tell us one now? Yeah, in nineteen, in about the middle of the nineteen ninety four or ninety five, uh, I was in the clinic. I was sixty years old. I was just a little bit before my retirement for my first job, and a very attractive uh, um, person came out and introduced herself. She was from a drug company, and we it was common to have detail. We called them detail men. Uh, who would come and talk about their drugs and so forth and so on. And uh, She didn't have an appointment that I knew of, but, but I happened to be in the hall outside the clinic, and, and she introduced herself, and she said, um, asked if we were using Botox, and I said, yes, we have. And I said, well, I said, we got a clinic going on right now and so forth. And she said, well, how much do you charge? And I kind of got on my bandwagon a little bit. I said, well, you know, uh, these people are all old and they're on Medicare and they have facial spasm and so forth. So and we've given, we've, this is a continuation of a clinic where we use the drug in the trial and we didn't charge. I said, we, we kind of almost don't charge them anything. And uh, she said, oh, but before that came out, she, she said, well, the reason I'm here is we're asking you to be part of the uh, panel, the medical expert panel uh, on the project where uh, where Allergan is making a new culture of the toxin. And would you be willing to do that? And I said, yes, I'd be happy to do it, you know. And then then she asked me about how much we charged. And then she got kind of a very disappointed look on her face. And she said, some of our doctors charge $1,000. And she turned around and left. Oh, <laughs> oh, so she wasn't interested in you anymore. No, no. Oh. I, was, I was hired, accepted, and fired inside of 42 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> and and, and I'm, I'm sometimes, uh, oftentimes, I'm not the brightest guy in the room. And I got to thinking, it, it took me a little while to think of what in the heck just happened. Right, <laughs> right. So, and then it, 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 uh, sort of lived up to the uh, saying that I've thought for a long time, uh, blood is thicker than water and money is thicker than blood. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but anyway, uh, most of the, most of the, but then there's a couple of other stories like that, but they sort of belong off in the, in the, in the woodwork. Uh-huh. Uh, but the whole project was fun. I'm glad it's finished. Now it's exciting to talk to people like you who do such a good job of what you do about the book. No, it's great. It must be really wonderful to have it be out in the world now. And yeah, send your send your baby out there uh, for people to enjoy and and to honor Alan Scott, right? Yes, to, yes, yeah, to yes. appreciate him. So no, that's really great. Thank you so much for writing the book and for taking the time uh, to spend with us today. Before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience if you want to refer them to a website or or anything? Well, yes, um, I'm uh, Alan Scott's age, so uh, I, I won't tell you, but I'm going to be 90 this year. So, congratulations, um, right? Well, we'll, Very we'll, good. We'll, we'll see whether that's something to be congratulated or endured. But at <laughs> any rate, uh, th- this has been uh, enjoyable. And, and this book is uh, is written to honor an event uh, uh, in, in a way to honor our era of 
people who started medical school in the 50s, uh, and mostly to honor the, the memory of Alan Scott, who was, in my opinion, an not only brilliant, but a heck of a good guy. Uh, and uh, we have an author's website at um, eugenehelveston.com, uh, and you can see a few other things that I've, I've uh, written uh, since I've retired from the second time, uh, some action thrillers and some self-help for young families with children in the second decade and so forth. And of course, uh, in the current book, uh, Death to Beauty. Uh, and we also have a feature called Uncle Barney with a few kernels of wisdom from somebody who's my age and still wants to talk to a little bit about society and his friends and the people coming along. So uh, thank you very much, Jennifer, for having the opportunity to be with you this morning. And it's been fun. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I hope that the reading public uh, learned something and maybe might even consider buying the book. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much. And I'll include the link to that in the show notes also for the thank listeners. You. So yeah, thank you very much. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure is mine. Thank you for listening. Our goal in 2024 is to expand our audience because we get such great guests. So we'd love your help in spreading the word by sharing, subscribing, liking, thumbs upping, rating, and commenting. Got all that? Really, thanks for any support. Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts is brought to you by Discreet Guy, the training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. Also, a shout out to Podomatic, our podcast hosting platform. You podcasters out there might want to check them out. They've been good to us. And finally, thanks to Quincas Morera for the theme music. Music